All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Brooklyn Boxing Podcast. I have a really special guest today, Ken Rideout. He's a marathoner, podcast host, business leader, and I'm just pumped to have you on. Excited to talk to you. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I'm flattered and honored to be here. I'm always surprised when anyone is interested in talking to me. So thank you. You made me feel good. <laughs> yeah, I hope I did all right with that intro. But yeah, you are a really interesting guy. I mean, the more I, I, I was looking into kind of your story and how active you are, you know, you're balancing a lot of different things. You got you got a family, you got a very successful podcast alongside Teddy Atlas. You're an incredible fitness athlete, marathons, Ironman, triathlons. You got a lot going on. So I just kind of wonder, you know, how are you balancing all of these things? Well, thank you for uh, thank you for all the kind words. When you repeat them back to me, I'm like, is he talking about me? Did I do that? And sometimes I have to remind myself, like, motherfucker, you did that. You're doing it. But I I, I suffer probably like from like a lot of people from imposter syndrome, fraud complex. Like I, I spend a lot of my time thinking like, oh, I fooled them. I, I'm, I'm just getting by. Like, I, I, okay, I won that race, but I was lucky. No one showed up. Um, and then after, you know, in time, the shit just starts to become like a reality. And in, 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 in a lot of ways, it all at once, things kind of came together. I started doing the podcast with Teddy. Everything that I've had good in my life took a level of conviction that you can't really teach someone like leaving my job in finance to work for myself allowed me the flexibility to explore other opportunities that I would never have had the opportunity to even see if I was working full-time for someone else in finance, you know, like a salary finance jobs in a lot of ways are like a bear trap on your ankle. It's like you, they give you just enough that you feel successful, but not enough to be completely free. And that level of security prevents people from exploring opportunities that require conviction that, oh shit, what if I don't get paid this month? Well, you figure it out. It's like, it's like, it's like being lost at sea. It's like, well, you better start swimming, dude. We'll worry about how we're going to get out of this. Like when the opportunity presents itself, but for now, goal number one is keep your head above water. So once I did that, I was, I met Teddy through the long story, but I have a friend named Rob Moore, one of my very best friends, nicest guy in the world. He was a PR professional in New York and did the same thing. He just went freelance. He was working at Edelman. He started doing PR work and we both coincidentally moved to LA at the same time from New York. He, um, he was working for small clients and I told him you should work for some fighters. My friend, Mike Lee, speaking of Notre Dame, was a Notre Dame grad. And I said, you should do some work for Mike Lee. He started doing stuff for Mike Lee. He had Mike Lee in Wall Street Journal, Men's Health. Mike already had a following, but Rob did some great work for him. And Mike's dad introduced Rob to Teddy. And Teddy was, they were starting to use Teddy less at um, ESPN. That's a whole nother long story, but he connected with Rob. And Teddy is an old school, almost like the movie Goodfellas or Godfather type guy. Like he does not trust anyone until they've earned his trust. And Rob said, Teddy, you should have a podcast so people know you're still out there. You can't let ESPN control your, your access to the fans. And he said, you, as a suggestion, maybe you could do it with my friend, Ken. He's a big fight fan. He's, you know, I think he would be good at this. So we had lunch together. Teddy agreed to give it a shot. 
and the rest is history. We started recording the podcast together and over time, our relationship has become like, like built on trust and love and respect. And he's like, we're like a little family. And, and he, 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 even like a family, I always tell people like, dude, I have fights with my wife and she's like my closest friend in the world. So you're gonna have disagreements with friends and business partners. It's not about having disagreements. It's about how do you work through them? So anyway, I digress again, but we started working together and we just slowly started getting better and better. And then UFC guys started mentioning that they heard this on Teddy Atlas and that on Teddy Atlas. And we started reaching out and now we've interviewed, all, I think every single champion, maybe except Kamaru Usman, We've had obviously Vasily Lomachenko, Alex Voz. I mean, we've had like superstars. We've been very fortunate. But back to my own story is once I started doing that and working for myself and then my running started to like come together, but that's the whole running journey. Like I didn't run races till I was in my thirties, but once I started to chip away, it's like one day you just, after several years of like being in this training lab of running 10, 15 miles every single day for several years, all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, I bet I'm going to win this. I think I can win this race. And I started winning races and I won the Malibu half marathon, Pasadena half marathon, 9,000 people finished in the Rose Bowl on TV. I'm like running in there like, holy shit, dude, look at this guy winning. It's me. I'm the winner. You know, <laughs> and I'm like fucking old man. And um, I say I'm an old man because I know I'm, I'm 50, but I don't feel old and I don't feel like I necessarily look old, but damn, 50 sounds old. Uh, anyway, that was a long-winded way of saying like all of this stuff is, I'm super grateful for all of it, but it all, I did it. I, I, you have to have conviction. You have to have confidence in yourself. You have to have a goal and you can't be afraid to state what those goals are as ambitious as they may sound. You have to believe them. hundred percent. And you know, you're still doing it, you know, it's just, just begun. It seems like for you, you know, in terms of like the fight game, like you're a personality that's growing like crazy, obviously with the podcast. And like, I love listening to the episodes. So it's like cool to talk to you in person after watching a lot of the episodes and like hearing you guys break down the fights and obviously Teddy, like there's no one better about like making it poetic, right? Like he just has all these one-liners that are just incredible that are like so motivating and he knows how to talk to fighters. It's like, you know, there's nothing like it, but to go back to like your story, you know, something you mentioned that I think is pretty interesting is now you're like very entrepreneurial and like maybe you always were like as a little kid or you always kind of had that in you obviously, but you mentioned, you know, with a finance job that you were in, you felt a little locked down. I guess like, at what point did it all click for you to really say like, all right, I'm going to expand my, you know, my horizons, I guess, and, and really take off in the, in the fitness element, the podcast element. Um, I did that happen like a little bit later on for you, or was that something that was always like a plan? Yeah, no, it, it happened later in life for me. Um, you know, when I moved to New York, I had a degree in sociology from Framingham State. No one in finance was looking for me. They weren't like, oh, shit, Ken's here. Thank God. No, they weren't opening the door for me, man. I kicked the fucking thing down and I, I got my ass into a brokerage job as an interdealer broker doing commodities. And I got fired from my first job. It was a crazy story. I was 
brokering um, electricity trades. And literally these guys were like hazing me, which was fucking crazy because I was boxing for the New York Athletic Club. I mean, I don't think I come across like a pussy. Can we curse on here? I don't know if this is a kid. Yeah, no, you're good to go. I don't think I come across like a pussy, but these guys were like, they were treating me poorly. And I was like, dude, I, I, I would rather you kick the shit out of me than for me to feel like I let you disrespect me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not a tough guy, but don't, okay, if someone does, says or does, says or does a certain thing to you, whatever it may be, you're just like, okay, well, I guess we're fighting. It's like, you know, prison rules. Like, you're not going to do that to me because the next day it's going to get even worse and I'm not the one. So, yeah, the guy, they were like hazing me and I slapped the guy across the face and they fired me from my first job. Now, I didn't even know we had competitors. That's how naive I was to this world. Long story short, I was covering some young guys at Enron doing some like like little next day trades that you had to do as a service for your customers to get the bigger trades. And the bigger trades were done by the senior traders that were handled by senior brokers. And those guys were making real money. So when I got fired, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I'm barely making any money now. And now I don't have a job and I'm in New York and I know nothing about finance. I barely knew what bids and offers were. And I called those guys at Enron and told them what happened. And they told the senior trader at Enron, who just so happened to be from Boston, Martha's Vineyard, and he was a nut. And he was the biggest trade. He was the Gordon Gecko of commodities at the time, a guy named Darren from, Stat from, um, from Martha's Vineyard. He called me up out of the clear blue and said, hey, stay by your phone. I heard what happened. I'm going to get you. We got, we're going to get you another job competitor to the place that fired me called me up said hey can you can you start on monday i was making 40 grand at the place that fired me and the new place was like we'll pay you 80 grand to me i was making more money than everyone i knew i mean this is i would just start to work and i was rich i got not only did i get there and have a higher salary but they were like hey uh darren's on the phone for you he wants to do a trade this is like gordon gecko has just called the desk and is like let's do some business i know nothing He's like, buy this, sell that. We're doing like $10,000, $20,000 trades at a clip, half of which is mine. Within two weeks, they were like, hey, your new salary is 125 grand. And it was just, and then from there, it was off to the races. And now I was like in this legitimate finance job, knowing all along though that it was a job and not necessarily a career. Being an interdealer broker, you're very beholden to your customers. One gets hit by a car. There's no one like, okay, can, can you cover these accounts? No, you better have relationships with these, with this little insular world. So um, yeah, I did that for a, a maybe six to 12 months. And the guy who hired me there became the head of energy trading at Kenner Fitzgerald, hired me to come over there. But because I had a contract, he said, hey, go to London and help set up that desk until your contract is up. And lo and behold, thank God I did. 9-11 happens. All the people that I would have been working with, unfortunately, died in the World Trade Center attack. So I was in London, avoided that. Like, thank, thank God. And um Enron went bust. That 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 job was going really well for a while. Enron went bust, um, and they asked me to come back to New York and take over credit derivatives, which I did, brokering credit derivative trades. And then from there, I was able to move to the banking side. So now I'm in. I'm on the sell side at a bank. I'm sitting next to guys with Ivy League MBAs across the board. I'm selling synthetic CDOs. I don't know what the hell it is, but I know that like we're making money. And uh, and then the financial crisis hit, and I. Uh, Again, had to reinvent myself and became a fixed income sales guy at Credit Agricole for a few years. And then at that point, I started to have kids. I had some money, but I was far from wealthy. You know, I mean, I, 
I, I like to spend money. Like I like to like, I like to have fun. I'm, you know, you can't take this money with you. And I wasn't always the best at planning for the future, but nevertheless, I had enough that I was comfortable trying something new. So I went to a FinTech startup with a friend of mine, a good friend of mine named Mark Kuchinad from Goldman Sachs. We worked together on a, um, a company called Electronify brokering all to all uh, corporate bond trades merged with another company. And at that point, that's when things transformed for me. I was riding my bike and I had been doing Ironman triathlons and everything good that I have in my life came from sports, everything. I was doing Ironman triathlons and I was riding my bike and I met a guy in LA who was an avid bike rider named Jack McDowell. He had a firm called the Palisades Group, an asset manager. It's a long story, but the short version is I told him he should hire me to do business development. He said, you don't have any experience. I said, that's okay. I'll work for free until you see what I can do. And he was like, okay. And after a few weeks, it was obvious that it was a fit. I raised their first two discretionary funds, which if you don't work in finance means nothing. But if you work in finance, first time manager, raising a discretionary fund with a guy in business development who has no business development experience. And we raised money from like institutional names that would, I don't want to say them publicly because I'm sure there's some NDAs in place, but like household names for endowments, insurance companies that people still are like, how the hell did you do that? And I'm like, I don't know, but I know that if you don't shoot, you're not going to score. And I was, I'll shoot the fucking lights out. I will shoot from anywhere. So that happened. And then once I realized that I could raise money, I started raising money for third parties and I decided to go out on my own. And that coincided with right when I started the podcast, I stopped doing triathlon as much and started just focusing on running because I was like, man, I bet I can win some races if I focus. So I'm sorry that was so long winded, but that's how I got to the point where I'm at now. And all along the way, it was like little small steps to show confidence in myself, to show prove to myself that I was dependable, which is something that Teddy Atlas would always talk about is like, the only person you have to convince is yourself. And I had to convince myself and over time, I did that. But even now I still like, am like scared of everything, just like everyone else, man, I'm scared. But I refuse to like, let that fear control my decision-making. Yeah. Nervous, like, oh man, I'm nervous to do that. You're fucking doing it now. Oh, I'm almost like two people battling in my brain. Like, don't tell him you're scared because then he's going to make us do Oh, now you committed us. Now we have to go. Now we're jumping out of a plane, you know, like, so. You know, it relates. I think it relates like to, to bring it back to boxing. Like it relates directly to like what a lot of fighters talk about before they enter a fight, um, before they get in the ring. I mean, I, there's old clips of Tyson and the amateur fights with Teddy, you know, with Teddy had the mustache at the time, much younger version, and he's consoling Tyson and he's crying and he, he has all these emotions before getting in. But obviously it's about controlling the fear, which Teddy talks a lot about. And after hearing like you talk about your business career, the first thought popped in my mind. I was like, wow, this guy's fearless. So he said to shoot from anywhere, but you are scared and you know how to control it. And and bringing that into your fitness, like through the marathons that you ran and are continuing to run, um, I'm interested in like your mindset pre-race, during race, and and after. And and like, what is the level of fear for you entering a race? Is it about winning? Is it about your own time? Um, and then during the race as well, like the voices inside your head, you know, you're, you're moving for a while. So like, what are you telling yourself? Are you battling that negative side, uh, throughout the race? Yeah. Good questions. Number one, I'm always scared. I'm always scared of failing. Um, 
but I would tell you this is that the thing that I like about running, and I've said this on like every interview I've ever done or any talk I've ever given is the thing I like about running is no one's going to punch you in the face or choke you unconscious when you're tired. So it's just you against yourself. How much can you suffer? And I have convinced myself this is no bullshit. I'm not trying to like be hyperbolic or a bullshit artist, but when I'm running the race, I'm like, I'll fucking die to beat you. I will die. I will, I will, I will run until my heart stops pumping. Cause I know that your body can take more than you can give it. So I know I'm not going to die. Although I've left races multiple times in ambulances <laughs> thinking, Holy shit, am I going to die? But um, so yeah, I'm always afraid that I'm not going to perform to my expectation, but that's the, that's kind of, I think if, if, if I had like a superpower, that would be it where I'm able to get into this zone where I convince myself that this is the most important thing that's going to happen in my life is right now, right in front of me. And uh, yeah, I'm nervous. I'm not scared. I, I have anxiety and fear of failing. And, and that fear of failing is in front of who? No one gives a shit if I step off this course and don't finish the race. Just me. But that fear of failing in my own eyes, it's like, I'm my own worst enemy and best friend. I'm the last person that I want to see on the race course if I'm someone else in, in like my category, like basically non-professionals, because I'm bringing it fucking all day. You might beat me, but it ain't. if we're close, I've won multiple races just by out psyching people and like out crazying them. <laughs> multiple examples, but um, so, and then during the race, what I'm thinking about is like, how am I managing my effort level? Am I... I'm basically trying to balance in a marathon and being on the absolute red line, but knowing that I can get to the finish line. So that, and that comes with a lot of that comes with experience. And this is a boxing podcast, so I don't want to bore people with running bullshit, but that is a, that's the balance there is like, how fast can I run and not run out of gas? And it takes multiple times, multiple races to get this. And every time you do it, it's like, I can't imagine doing that again. Like, fuck, why am I doing this? But the minute I finish, I'm like, oh, either that was great. That wasn't great. What could I do differently? Can I go a step faster? And um, yeah, that it, 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 my psyche prior to the race too. So that's, that's what I'm going through mentally. But my personality before the race is like, I can be, people are kind to me. I'm kind to them. Like now it's different people now recognize me. And I, again, I am fucking super lucky, super grateful. Anyone that's like recognizes me. I'm so like, they're like, Oh my God, Ken. And I'm like, dude, I can't believe you know me. It's like, <laughs> I'm as happy as they are. So before, but, but typically like, I'm like going right to the front, standing on the start line. And if anyone tried to stop me, I'd be like, fucking dude, mind your business. Like I'm on a mission, but if someone tried to step in front of me, I'm the worst hypocrite. I would literally be like, dude, don't fucking dare try and step in front of me. Stand back. When the race starts, you'll have your opportunity to pass me, but it ain't happening. And, um, and then after the race, I love everyone. I'm like, ah, great job. I'll stay there and cheer on the last person. But when it's race time, I'm a dick. I'm like, I have too much time and effort invested in this. I, I have, we can be friends after this is over. And uh, I'll give you one quick example of like one time when I like uh, out, out alpha a guy at a race at the, uh, I won the Myrtle Beach Marathon and um, I'm running through like three, four miles. I'm leading by a lot. <clears throat> so I'm like, oh shit, this is going to, this is great. I'm going to win. 
but this is going to be a long way to run by yourself. And, and next thing you know, there's a guy like stomping out a fire behind me. So he's running, but he's like, <clears throat> which pisses me off. Not that he's running behind me, but I hate when people are like Bigfoot behind me and he's running right on my heels. So after a mile, I just turned around and I was like, dude, don't run right on my fucking heels. It's fine to run behind me, but if you're going to like, you know, I was just like fucking with them basically, but I was pissed. So he was like, oh, and he was a little younger. He jumps in front of me. So now he's leading from like four to seven miles and he keeps trying to surge, like running five, 15 miles. I'm like, so let's go, dude. I'll do this all fucking day. You're going to have to like do more than this. So from seven to 10 miles, uh, from, from 10 to 17, he's leading along the beach in Myrtle Beach into a vicious headwind. And it's just me and him. Now, if he had just got off the front, I would have worked with him to like, you run a mile, I'll run a mile, stay out of the wind. It's like, it, it has a massive effect. Who's running in the back is a like 10 to 20% less power needed. So he stayed in the front the whole time because in hindsight, he was afraid to get off the front because I yelled at him. And as soon as we turned out of that wind, I just dropped him and ran away with the wind. And then afterwards, I was like, I would have worked with you into the wind. He's like, well, after you yelled at me, I was afraid to get off the front. And I was like, Sorry, dude, you learned a valuable lesson today. Yeah. Don't be bullied. No, yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I mind fucked him. Yeah, you did. You did. He was good. <laughs> and it's like yeah i mean i just i think a lot about I, I like to run as well not on your level i'm getting there i'm building up my stamina but the uh you, you can run like me if it's important enough to you you'll do it yeah well maybe that's a challenge i'll have to sign up for a marathon soon then let's do I it <laughs> when i tell you this i have no zero natural gifts i have no natural skills i'm not a fucking particularly good athlete but i try hard and that's why i tell my kids is you don't have to do good you can strike out every time you can be the worst person i don't care how you do but you will not go out there and lollygag you will not go and not give 110 percent. as long as you're trying your hardest i don't care if you're good but you can't be out there fiddle fucking we need focus and effort that's it. That's like the story of life. So is running for you more of a, like when you're running by yourself, is it a way to kind of like be an escapist a little bit and kind of like clear your mind at all? Or is it, is it always kind of like you're checking the clock? No, no, no. You can't run like that. And, um, I only run by myself typically. Like I, I'm not opposed to running with people with no one wants this. No one, no, you know what I mean? No one, People wanted, I want to do this, I want to do that. I'm like, okay, run 10 miles a day for three years, then add in some workouts. They're like, well, okay, you lost me. <laughs> so, but when I run, I, it's, it's hard to say, like, I feel different every day. Some days I, you know, if I, now I'm on a skin, now I have like a legitimate training plan and a real coach when I'm ready, getting ready for a marathon. But let's say if I'm not in training, like, so for the next few months, by the next month or two, I'll start getting ready for Boston in January. But let's say for the next two months, I just go out and run 10 miles every day. Um, and it's not a negotiation. I never, ever wake up and go, ah, fuck, I'm too tired. I'm not going to do it today. That wouldn't like, that's so foreign to me. It'd be like, let me smash my finger with a hammer. Like, why would you do that? That's how I feel about not running. Like, well, are you crazy? Rain, snow, sleep, it doesn't matter. I take the kids. We went skiing in Aspen, as an example, in the, in the winter. And I ran every single day in a couple of days. It was like a blizzard. 
I ran every day. One time I went skiing in Alta with my buddy who has a house up there. It was just the two of us. And they have a thing in Alta called Interlodge. If it snows too much, they lock you in the house. You can't leave because it's severe avalanche risk up there. And they don't want to be looking for you as they're setting off avalanches. So we were locked in the house for three days, dude. And when they finally, like, the, the sun finally came up, but you weren't technically allowed out of the house. And he was in a condo with a driveway that was probably a hundred yards long. Wasn't even plowed. When I tell you the snow was chest deep, but the plow had come through multiple times a day just to try to stay on top of it. I went out there in like ankle deep snow with ski gear on and running shoes. And I ran eight miles in a driveway back and forth in a single line and still moved, ran like 7.30 pace with a stop every hundred yards. Not that I was running hard, but I was like, dude, I got to get out there and run. I'm, gonna, I'm losing my mind. And uh, <laughs> people were like, there were like a hundred people looking out the windows, like cheering and like, you know, yelling. <laughs> they were like, what the, f this guy's crazy. Real life Rocky. That's it, dude. I was just running. Um, <laughs> you got the so, woman on your back. You're <laughs> <laughs> dude, I was... When I tell you I was cold, it was like the Arctic Circle. I couldn't feel my fingers and feet. I was freezing. And I wore a path out, just a freaking line in the snow, back and forth, back and forth. But like, I've, I literally have conditioned myself that there is, there's no alternative. Like, this is what you have to do. It's like my blessing and curse in life that I want to run and keep busy. Yeah, I think that mentality, just to segue here, it leads perfectly into a topic that I wanted to touch on um, surrounding Dustin Poirier, a guy that you've obviously had on the podcast along with Teddy. That's my boy, man. That's my boy. I love Dustin Poirier. I just spoke to him this morning. That's that awesome. Guy, yeah. That guy is he's the best. Yeah, I'm very, very happy for him. Um, you know, his last, his last two wins and obviously getting a big paycheck. And now he's getting the title shot that he's been seeking his whole career and to go back to relate it to you in terms of running towards a goal and you know one more mountain um he was on Ariel Hawani's show yesterday and there was a great quote you probably saw it but Teddy texted him something and it said uh you know one more mountain to to climb for the ultimate view and I just thought that was so powerful and um wanted to hear your thoughts around that for Dustin and then also like, what is that mountain for you to get that ultimate view in fitness, in business, in podcasts, like in life? Is it, is there ever that one mountain that you're looking for? Or is it just a continuous one after another? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm in like a ro I'm, in, I'm in like a valley of rolling mountains. And every time you get to one, there's another one over there. Um, but first for Dustin, like, I don't know. I, I he's such a good friend. Like I, I, I the thought of him winning and having the title like almost like makes me feel emotional just thinking about him achieving that knowing what he's been through and knowing what you know fighting is a unique sport I mean so many people are trying to be great at that and to think that one guy in that weight class gets to be the champ and it might be him I'm just I'm just happy for him he's a good dude and couldn't be a nicer person um and then for me I feel like I've had that view a couple of times, certainly winning a marathon, winning, winning, winning some half marathons and then winning the Myrtle Beach Marathon was a big, was a big mountain to climb. And, and while my time in New York City, 233 wasn't my best by far, I ran 229 in London uh, four weeks before, five weeks before. Winning the master's division there was probably in my mind the most impressive or the my my proudest athletic accomplishment of my life um only because 
number one, the past winners include guys who I consider my good friends as well, but they're legends. Meb Kaflesky. Meb Kaflesky won the Boston Marathon. He won the New York Marathon. He got a silver in Athens in the marathon in the Olympics. And Abdi Abdi Rachman, who has been on five U.S. Olympic teams in a row as a runner. It's unheard of. I mean, think about the longevity and the, the, the staying power to be able to run. And I mean, dude, just making one Olympic team is crazy in the United States. It's so competitive. This son of a bitch went to five of them. And I love Abdi. He's a good dude from the Sudan. And Meb is from Eritrea. I have a daughter from Ethiopia. Ethiopia, Eritrea used to be part of Ethiopia. They border each other. So there's a lot of there's a lot of variables in 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 those relationships and how I feel about these guys. And um, to have my name on a list of past Masters winners, which is 40 plus, I'm 50. I won my own age group by 16 minutes. To have my name on, to win the Masters division in New York, it doesn't even seem real to me now, even saying it to you. And look, I, I'm not naive. I know that those guys, like when, when, when Abdi won, and I think he ran 212, I know that those guys didn't show up, but guess what? I fucking did show up and I did what I had to do and I got the win and that's, and no one can take that from me. So that is a view that I have enjoyed for the past few days, but eventually that view starts to fade and you're like on to the next thing. It's just life, you know, like you're not going to sit around thinking about the goal you scored in college, but at the time you score it, you're like, holy shit, I did it. I scored a winning goal or I aced my test and I graduated from an incredible, you know, whatever it is, the view goes away. And it's like, what's the next thing in life? The thought of my children, I have them convinced that they can only go to military academies, but the thought of one of my kids graduated from Navy or West Point or Air Force, it's like overwhelming. Like those, so the, 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 the mountain range is always there. It's just a matter of like, which mountain do you want to be on top of? And can you get there? You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not naive to think that these are easy achievements, but maybe you're, maybe someone listening there, their, their view is just finishing a marathon. Maybe they have some ailment where they're like, if I could just cover 26 miles in a day, whatever it is, everyone knows that feeling of achieving something. And, 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 and that's all relative. I just happen to like have a bigger audience now. Thank you God for all the things that I've been given. I feel so lucky, but like I said, I, I did this. I created this reality. No doubt. And in fighting right now, like you think of guys who are accomplish, accomplishing so much and not getting complacent, right? Like they're starting to put the next mountain ahead of them, the next, the next, the next. They continue to go and build that legacy. And you, like you look at a guy like Canelo Alvarez and what he's done in boxing, first undisputed at 168. Now he's talking about possibly a move to 175 against Bev or Bevel. I mean, we're talking about a guy who is extremely active, four fights a year. He's the pound for pound number one. I mean, we are blessed as fight fans to be able to see a guy who's at the top, continue to stay active, and then just seek higher and higher, higher accolades. I mean, guys like him, guys like Dustin Poirier, guys like, uh, you know, Khabib when he was around. But then an interesting thing I want to talk about is, Someone like McGregor, for instance, who achieved it all. He got the double champ status. He had all the money in the world. And now, you know, he got the Mayweather fight, which obviously extremely lucrative. It seems like, you know, he's a different guy now. There's that classic fighter story of guys reaching the highest highs and then 
there, there isn't a mountain in sight anymore, right? They start to trend downwards. We've seen it through history. So it's like, how can guys that reach the highest highs like that continue to stay motivated in your mind? Look, I think some people just have different DNA. I think it's sad to see what's happening to McGregor. He's like slowly self-destructing, acting a fool. I don't know if the dude is on like opioids or what's the story, but he's acting crazy. It's like he's wasn't comfortable being loved and, and celebrated that he's like turned into like the heel. I don't, I don't understand it. And um in a lot of ways, it's sad to see because I don't root against him. I'm not like a necessarily a McGregor fan or a hater. I, I'm just I'm just like a, a unbiased observer watching someone self-destruct or like make very bad decisions, punching people in the face in a bar. I mean, dude, being a UFC fighter, MMA fighter comes with a level of responsibility. You're going to punch an old man in the face. He's been accused of so many different things. Look, I don't I think that he's probably a target for a lot of false accusations, but when you have that many headlines, dude, there's a problem. Um, and then someone like Canelo, um, yeah, look, Canelo's the best. I mean, I, I think you could make a case for um, Terrence Crawford or in a way, I think that there are a lot of great guys that could make a case. Usyk has never lost. He's won, I mean, to go up from cruiserweight to heavyweight, he won an Olympic gold medal. Um, you know, I think Canelo, he's got that Mexican crowd, so he's the golden goose in terms of finances, but I don't necessarily think that he's head and shoulders number one pound for pound. I think that there's like four or five guys that, three or four guys you can make the case for, like I said, including Inoue, Crawford, um, Usyk. Um, I'd argue that Triple G is 1-0-1 um, and one against, um, yep. against Canelo, Teddy thinks that triple g's two and all against canelo that's not taking away anything away from canelo i like him i just want to give some context there uh, yeah. but yeah look he if he goes up and fights better be or and or bevel i'll say he's the best pound for a pound if he can beat either one of those guys or both i mean i helped teddy train alex vosdick for a fight that we lost to better be and i've seen him in like in action and if canelo can beat that guy i'll call him the best pound for pound no question i just yeah. i it's can't see it it's interesting because like everyone has this perception of Canelo, me included to an extent, but I kind of remind myself that he is beatable. Like everyone thinks about him now as he's untouchable, but you know, we've seen him have problems with uh, Arislandi Lara, you know, obviously Triple G is uh, those were could could have gone. Triple G, beat Triple G beat him in the first fight. Look yeah, at Triple G yeah. from a marketing perspective. He can't get arrested. Canelo goes on to like fame and fortune. I could I could live with them giving Canelo the second fight, but look at the look at the draw that Canelo is. He's like from a business perspective and a financial perspective. Who do you think sir is better served? For, who's who does boxing better serve as a winner? Canelo or Triple G? The kid from Kazakhstan or the Mexican fan that brings the friggin' fans everywhere he goes? I think he got a gift with a draw, and that's all you need to know is how big of a draw is he, and he got a draw like. You think if he was close to winning that they would have given Triple G a draw against Canelo? Come on. It's just, it's just sad to see, but that's boxing. Boxing is like, it's so corrupt. It's, it's scary. Not, not, not specifically with regards to Canelo. It's just like who gets the decisions. It, it happens like almost on a weekly basis. You see decisions that are so one-sided, but the A side is, 
99% of the fights, the A side is always going to win. It's like you can look down a scorecard. You can look down a fight card for the night and, and, and basically with great confidence pick who's going to win without question. You look at a UFC card, any main event card, and you can basically say everyone on that card has a chance of winning. So, yeah, no doubt. I mean, the biggest problem in boxing, I feel, is just there's too many belts, no clear rankings. Like you said, there's heavy mismatches. Yeah. I think it's less about the belts and more about the like too many promoters that have their own stables of fighters and they only want them fighting each other. Yeah. You know, like Heyman is not going to make a fight with a, with a top rank guy. They're just not going to do it. PBC is not putting guys in with top rank guys, unless this cash is so heavy, unless there's so much money to be made that they're like, all right, we can live with a loss to like the other guy's team. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the part that's, you know, like Dana White said, every boxing match is promoted like a going out of business sale. It's yeah. like, as much money as we can for this fight. And don't worry about what happens on the next one. The fans will keep showing up. Yeah, no, it is true. There's a lot of issues with boxing, but we've been blessed with some great fights recently. Obviously, the Wilder and Trilogy, Wilder and Fury trilogy was awesome. All time heavyweight fight that was. And then the, even this weekend, we got Terrence Crawford, like you mentioned, back in there with Sean Porter, which is a, uh, you know, I obviously give, Crawford uh the slight you know favor there but Sean Porter is no no joke at all he's an absolute dog he's going to come forward and pressure him and um you know what are your thoughts on that fight do you think Porter's got a chance to maybe outwork Crawford or do you think uh the judges are stacked against him no I don't think that's a case of judges I think Terrence Crawford is far too good I think Terrence Crawford beats him I mean what's the line on that fight five to one yeah, I'd have to check. I imagine it's I imagine it's fairly wide, but I just feel like it could be closer than people think due to uh, Porter's performance against Errol Spence. It could be. It could be. He gave Spence problems, but remember that Styles make fights, and Terence Crawford can switch Southie Orthodox, uh, Southpaw um, Orthodox, <laughs> South, South, Southie South Boston slip there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He can switch. So between uh, Southpaw and Orthodox better than anyone in the sport, maybe ever. He's unbelievable. He doesn't get a lot of chances to show his greatness because he's never in there with the greatest competition, but he's dispatched everyone he's faced. And I think this will be a good opportunity for him to show him how show people how good he is. So if you're asking me my opinion, I think I think um, Terrence Crawford beats him. I think he may be the first person who stops Porter. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, and I think Terrence Crawford looks good doing it. Um, so yeah, look, it's a good fight, but even with a good fight, like I said, the line, I think, I think it's five to one. It's something crazy, but like, you know what I mean? In a main event with a, with a, with a, with a, with a highly anticipated UFC main event, you're not going to see a three, four, five to one favorite one side or the other, typically. Um, so, but yeah, I'm looking forward to that fight. Cause we don't get a ton of them. Um, I mean, look at the, what the UFC has done the last few weeks. Just this friggin' Holloway, Yaya Rodriguez fight was insane. And that's coming off the heels of Gaethje Chandler and uh, Usman Covington. I mean, every week, every week. And um, so, but but no, look, I, I, my, I love boxing. That's my like first, like, I, I like boxing probably a little bit more than the UFC traditionally. But I know when I go to watch UFC, like, I never miss a fight from the early prelims to the main event with a boxing card. I mean, if I'm going to the fights, I get there the minute the door is open. But if there is a, 
the fights on TV. Like I didn't see the undercard for Munguia. I didn't see the undercard for Benavides. I would have liked to, but the UFC was on and I watched those and then I bounced over and caught the main events on, um, on um, Showtime and zone. So. No, I hear you. I'm always bouncing back and forth as well. The UFC is just on an incredible roll and they really stack their cards. I mean, they have unbelievable fights from start to start to finish the MSG card, you know, with Covington and Usman, like the prelims alone had many moments that went viral with the spinning heel cook, heel, uh, heel kick on John Vellante. I mean, that was insane. There was just, I mean, the UFC is on fire right now and they're closing out the year with the the lightweight championship coming up soon with Poirier. So I'm super excited for that. I think. I know, dude, that's my, I'm so disappointed. I'm not going to be at that fight. I was at the one, the last one when he beat McGregor, but my man, Rob, our producer is um, getting married in Mexico that weekend. So I'm going to, uh, I'll be in Mexico um, for the long weekend um, and we'll miss uh, Dustin Poirier winning the title but we'll catch up with them the next week. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Before I let you go here, I just wanted to, you know, ask you a little bit about some of the guests that you've had on the podcast. Um, you know, you've had so many people in boxing, in, in combat sports. I know we talked a lot about Dustin and, you know, how good relationship you have with him. But is there any guys that uh, have stood out to you on, in, in the UFC or boxing that maybe surprised you, certain guests that, you know, had an interesting perspective. I know Israel Adesanya, that was a really cool interview you guys did. And, um, yeah, dude, at one point we, we had Francis and Ghana on a few times. We got in the ring. I got in the ring and like moved around, like clowning around, acting <laughs> like I was firing with Francis and Ghana. That was pretty imp like, uh, like jaw dropping. I mean, that dude is a beast. Like you're talking about a guy who's like six, five, 265 pounds ripped, like ripped. I mean, cutting weight to get make heavyweight in the UFC. Um, and Teddy worked with them, right? A little bit in yeah. boxing, like he was yeah. working with them. And a little bit, yeah. We did a whole day at uh, Extreme Couture. Um, then uh, Ryan Garcia. I mean, Ryan Garcia's got like 8 million followers on social media. That was a pretty good one. And he's got like a lot of um, youthful enthusiasm. Like he's just a very authentic dude. Super happy to be talking to Teddy. That was an that was an interesting, interesting one. Um, obviously, Vasily Lomachenko, one of the most decorated athletes in the history of boxing, two-time gold medalist in the Olympics, three-division world champion. Back in the ring soon, right? Won a win, won, yeah, won a, win, won a world title in his third fight ever. Um, Jesus, there's so many superstars that we've had, man. We had Evander Holyfield. Uh I mean, I, sometimes I'm like, I got to pinch myself. I look at the list and I'm like, oh my God, we had, we interviewed that guy. Holy shit. <laughs> Doesn't seem real, man. It's, it's awesome. Just pictures with like world championship belts. And then Teddy and I trained Alex Vosdick. So we lived together for eight weeks in Philly. That was crazy. Um, but yeah, we've been, I mean, I, listen, I got to pinch myself all the time. I can't believe this is my life. I feel like I'm talking about someone else. Um, <laughs> it's never lost on me, man. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky, but I created my own luck. Definitely. I'm, uh, I'm excited to see what is next for you guys, who, who you're going to have next on the podcast. It's always exciting to watch it because, you know, your enthusiasm for the sport, like definitely shines through. You can tell, you know, you know, what you're talking about, you really care about, you know, providing a quality interview, getting good insight out of guys. So I'm a fan um i love it I'm, i'll be tuning in 
And, uh, you know, it's great to have you on here a little bit about your backstory. And, um, you know, I appreciate you spending some time today. Well, thanks for having me, man. Like I said, I'm, I'm incredibly flattered and honored that you would even have an ounce of interest in me or my life. So thanks for having me. And um, I enjoyed the I enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Ken.